From Buffalo, Toronto, Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks. Highlights of important interviews from our weekday discussion on race and diversity. On today's program, a freewheeling conversation with the ladies of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority in Buffalo. We don't step either. No, I'm a little too <laughs> old for that. Yes, we, we may stroll a little bit. Also, Buffalo-based author Sandra Brown. We have this thing that we say within the black community that we pay a black tax. And that black tax is, is that we have to work twice as hard just to prove that we're just as good as maybe the average white person. And Shai Arnold from Nura and Associates. We always need resistors and champions, I always say. So any work that I develop, I always say, let me go to my resistors first. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for being with us. Up first, Buffalo area nurse practitioner Shonda Brown talks about her book, The Black Professional's Guide, How to Navigate White Privilege in the Workplace. The book kind of started off um, kind of like uh, it, it, it was an exercise of... Um, catharticism for me because I had a experience at work and I do write I write poetry I write short stories but I it, it was so traumatic for me I said you know what I gotta write this down because I can't believe this just happened to me and then it just kind of took off from there and it expanded and because of me being a nurse practitioner I wanted to make sure that I wasn't speaking just from my experiences. So I had to interview people. And in me interviewing people, that meant I had to interview black, white, Asian. I had to interview all people and say, you know what? When you see black people or brown people in the workplace, what comes to mind? What do you think of? What have you seen them get jammed up by? And a lot of the scenarios were so similar that I was able to kind of like just go, chapter by chapter by chapter of things that happen to not just black people, white people too in the workplace because sometimes I feel like people kind of enter the workplace kind of green, kind of um, an experience. And a lot of the issues that happen, they're not expressible. You can't actually put them into words. You can't verbalize them. So they enter the workplace, a lot of hubris, a lot of arrogance, a lot of ignorance. And then Boom, they get jammed up. So a lot of unwritten rules. How many people did you interview? 30. And what was the number one common theme? Not knowing your worth, not feeling wanted, not feeling accepted. So that was all about knowing your worth. So that's why there's a chapter that says know your worth. And it's not just the monetary worth. It's you valuing what you bring to the table, the experiences that you have. And we have this thing that we say within the black community that we pay a black tax. And that black tax is, is that we have to work twice as hard just to prove that we're just as good as maybe the average white person. And so I find that to be, at first when I heard it, I was like, eh, hmm, I don't know, because I'm a city honors graduate. I've always been smart. I didn't feel like I had to work twice as hard. I felt like it was kind of easy for me to fly under the radar and just get by. Mm-hmm. But then when I entered in the workplace, I realized that because I didn't want to be seen or perceived as lazy, I found myself working harder and harder while most people are just skating by. And you're not alone. I've, I've read that in a lot of other places. Uh, I think back to Condoleezza Rice, Mm -hmm. obviously someone operating at the highest levels. She, in her autobiography, said the same thing, that early in her career, 
she felt she really just had to be perfect mm-hmm. because she was a person of color. Right. And 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 oftentimes we, we carry that on our shoulders. We carry that stigma. I don't know if anybody can imagine how fearful it is when you hear about a crime and you don't have the identity of the person. I can guarantee you there are millions of black and brown families sitting at home saying, please don't let them be black. Please don't let them be Latina. Please don't let them be Hispanic. And then when they're not, it's a sigh of relief. And then when they are, you're like, oh, my God, the whole world is judging all of us because it's this ideal that we're a monolith, that we're the same person across the board. And we're not. We we are individuals with individual ideals. Some of us are conservative. Some of us are liberal. And then some of us just kind of play it easy and ride the middle lane. And I didn't want to play it easy and ride the middle lane. I wanted to take the bull by the horns and actually talk about some of the preconceived ideals that affect black people in the workplace. And is it your contention that these things really affect people of color to a greater degree? I do. Okay. I really do. I always feel like the punishment never fits the crime when it comes to the gaps and the mistakes that are made in the workplace. And I kind of highlight that in my book. I, I, I have a friend. Um, I'm very good friends. Um, he's a surgeon. And he, he was a single man. And he, he liked to play in the workplace. And I used to tell him, you, you can't do that. You, you can't do Practical that. Practical jokes, you're saying? No. Oh, he liked okay. to, you know, a little naughty. Same. The workplace was like his playground. So he's in the workplace and he's dating and he's doing this and he's breaking hearts left and right. And I told him, I said, you got to be careful. You can't do what they do. And sure enough, what did they do? They took one incident that he, you know, probably manipulated a little bit and they blew it out of proportion. And he actually didn't practice for two years because he was fighting them legally in order to get off the blacklist that they tend to put physicians on. And I told him, I said, just because this person who looks like this does that, you cannot do the same thing. One of your other chapter headings is racism. Sure. Now prove it. Mm -hmm. That plays a role here as well. It's indescribable, indescribable. The hairs on the back of our neck. It's a feeling in the pit of your stomach. It's the small microaggressions that are subtle. And you're saying to yourself, okay, wait a minute. I know it's racism, but how do I prove it? How do I prove it? And and sometimes you can't prove how people feel, but you have to prove what they do to you. You have to prove the inconsistencies. You have to find parallel incidents from other people that don't look like you, that don't add up to what you're going through and what's happening to you. Joe, white guy did something, was treated this way. Jane, black woman, did something, she was treated that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you need to document. And you have to document because me being a healthcare professional, if it's not documented, it's not done. It's absolutely not done. And I stand on that. So if you say like the best, um, the, the biggest lesson about real estate is location, location, location. Well, the biggest, biggest lesson you can take about the workplace is documentation, documentation, documentation. And you have to document it. And it's the subtleties. I tend to be a very direct communicator. I don't pull any punches. Um, And I've been told that I've been tone checked. Oh, it's your tone. It's this. And I'm like, well, no, I don't see it because this is the way I I always am. Mm. So why is it my tone towards you, but towards other people? They're like, oh, I don't pay attention to her. That's just the way she is. So why is there this sense of fragility? And I always wonder if I were a white male, would you feel it was my tone? 
You talked about that at the beginning of the program, that there was an incident that sort of inspired you to, to write this book. Mm -hmm. I don't want to drag you too far down a path you're not willing to go, but describe that or, or some of the other struggles that you've had. Well, that particular incident, there was a disagreement between myself and a younger nurse, a white nurse, and it was over a lab draw. And I was like, well, no, I think it's this. And she's like, no, it's not. It's this. It's this. And then she just started ramping up. Mm -hmm. She yelled. She screamed. She was throwing things. We had patients and we had coworkers who were witnessing. And all of a sudden she started crying. She went home and she was put on a final warning. But then she kept having other incidents, not only with patients, but with other coworkers of color. And I'm like, how is it that she's like still here? Why is she still here? And I said, is this what privilege looks like? Really? Am I watching it unfold before my eyes? Because I'm pretty sure if I had retaliated, it would have been, been against it, it would have been against me. Chandra Brown is with us. She's the author of The Black Professional's Guide, How to Navigate White Privilege in the Workplace. Book's two years old. Mm hmm. Is it time to rewrite, or is everything in it uh, pretty much uh, 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 an example that will stand the test of time? A classic, as it were. It is a classic. It is until we can er eradicate the idea of these um, biases and these preconceived notions, is 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 going to age very well. Um, a few of my readers, my test readers, beta readers, I posted about it at home working on book two and. The comments were, it's still relevant. Every mm. single chapter, it's 11 chapters, and it's still relevant. So I think it will age well. As long, the book is relevant, you said, as long as relationships have trouble. Yes. And it, it's the interpersonal relationships because I, I feel like what, what kind of precludes, uh, not precludes, but prohibits people from becoming familiar with uh, each other's distance and opportunity and experience. Like, well, I live in a very multicultural neighborhood. I went to multicultural spaces. I've always been in predominantly white spaces. So people have had access to me. But for those who live in the suburbs and with the suppression of black images in media and how you don't see these loving families or you see one of, because you do have your... Um, what was it? Um, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You had the Cosby show. Um, you had um, the show with Officer Winslow. But you didn't see that. It, it, was, it wasn't yeah. common. Mm -hmm. And I know black families who had mother and father who were lawyers or had a dad who was a doctor. But if you don't see that constantly, how do you have access to us to know that we're everyday, ordinary people? Frame of reference becomes everything. Mm-hmm. How do you teach the person from uh, Darien Arcade about the life that you lead? You can't teach them. You have to expose them to it. You have to show them like this is normal. This is commonplace. Now, we have a lot of a lot of TV shows that are out there now because there's this whole idea of inclusivity, which some people will call wokeism, which I don't understand, but inclusivity. So you have a reboot of the Wonder Years, and it's with a black family, mm -hmm. a black family in the 60s. It's an amazing show. And I'm saying to myself, oh, my gosh, that's that's what happened. My grandmother did this. If people could see more images like that. Yeah. It would be a better place. It really would be because you, you do have your your Winslow's. You have your Philip Banks. But then you just have your regular, ordinary family, middle class, just trying to make it. So, 
Jillian Hainsworth, the Poet Laureate, is a, a sometimes guest on this program. And last time she was on, she said, Dave, just go to lunch on the east side. That, that integration is an active thing just by exposing mm-hmm. yourself. Absolutely. Because let me tell you, I don't live on the east side. I grew up on the east side, but I don't live on the east side. But I absolutely love the history, the people. I, as a matter of fact, I'm filming my own little um access talk show, um, Coffee and Conversations with Cookie at the Apollo. And whenever I'm down there, I just take in that whole area. It's right across the street from where the tragedy happened. I take in that whole area and I live it and I breathe it and I inhale it. And it is now becoming more and more integrated. It's not uncommon to see white people or um, people who I'm assuming to be Latino or um, Asian in those areas. And there's no animosity. There's no hostility. People have this ideal that if you come on the east side, this is going to happen to Mm -hmm. you. (laughs) Nothing would absolutely happen to anyone. They would be more so inclined to come after me because they know I'm a black female intersectionality. They're not going to investigate a crime against me as hard as they would a white person or Asian person. So if you come over to the east side, there's a wonderful cigar bar there. There's the, you know, the revamping of the tops there. There's the Apollo Media and it's public. So you can come in there. You can talk to the director. You can get some things done. You can shoot a podcast. You just have to expose yourself. And it's the integration part that people are so fearful of. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Buffalo. I grew up... um, Primarily um, French Street area, and then we moved to um, Reed Street. We lived there for quite some time, and while I lived on Reed Street, that's where I attended City Honors from, and most of my friends from Reed Street were still friends. We call ourselves Reed Street (laughs) All-Stars. So, I mean, I'm I'm an East Side girl, and, and, and I love it. I just love the area. And therefore, I've got to assume... The, the 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 shooting devastated you. No, you know. First of all, I know there's a resilience thing thing there. It's, well, it's not even about the re- because I don't want people to to lead with that trope either. That because we're such a resilient people that it doesn't affect us. My best friend. That's a trope. You. It's say. a trope. Okay. My right. best friend is the bookkeeper there, and I knew she was working that day. And when I got the phone call from one of the Reed Street All-Stars, because like I said, we all grew You're up on Reed Street. We're a group. We talked to each other. Did you hear about the shooting? What shooting? Tops. I was actually out in Hamburg with my mother at the casino. What shooting at Tops? Which Tops? Jefferson. My heart dropped. So I'm calling my girlfriend. I'm calling her. And her sister is calling me. She's fine. She's fine. She's fine. It was so unbelievable. So devastating. But what was even more so devastating is to have to go to, you know, go to work and not have not one of your coworkers ask you, are you okay? It wasn't even acknowledged. It wasn't even uh, I'm so sorry for your community. It was nothing. Do you think it was a matter of them staying away from it because it was a racial issue? I think that had some... Uh, If if I'm going to ask you about it, I'm going to assume that it represents something different to you because you're a person of color. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that's a a more difficult conversation to have. Anytime you're talking about race... It's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to, to sit here and be a person of color. But 
these are the tough conversations that we have to have in order to reach a common ground and a common understanding. So one way to do it is to acknowledge that this awful thing happened in a community that represents you, even if I don't live there. I still have family there. I still have roots there. So even if I don't live there, I represent that community. I'm a person of color. I I love that tops because I love my friends that work there. So I might have at any given point in time have been sitting on the bench with my best friend, having a conversation with her on her on her break. You know, I I would just sometimes just say, "What are you doing? Oh, I'm about to go on cigarette break. Okay, I'm going to come sit on the bench with you." So this that's home. That's family. So how do you Acknowledge that these people had this tragic thing happen to them based solely on their color. And why did this person have so much access? That's the other part. The food deserts, the the the, the lack of resources is why they had to reopen that tops because there is no no community market. There right. is no co-op. So that whole it's a bigger picture. But just acknowledge the incident first and then we can talk about the problems and how to solve them. So and. Is it proper for someone to just assume that it's okay to have these conversations? Um, when when is it useful and good? When am I being offensive? How do we draw that line? You know what? I don't. It it takes a lot to offend me because I don't feel any question is a dumb question. We learned that in school. The only dumb question is the one unasked. But what I don't like is the the well. I mean, I know that happened to you, but it is. <laughs> and so how do you say it's just all about race? Because this happened, that centering, okay. it, it drives me insane. And then when they deliberately want to miss the point, when they don't want to deliberately, deliberately yeah. miss the point. And you can tell when someone is being deliberate in their tone and their conversation, the condescending, the patronizing. Those are the things you can't document when you're trying to document racism. Going back to it. Right, right. Right. But you can feel them. So I don't I don't feel like it's offensive. But to ask the question. But I feel like if I tell you that you're being offensive, that's not your time to get resentful and then try to tone check me and then try to downplay how I'm feeling about your question. If you say the question is valid, then I must be ready to assume that your answer is valid. Right. You can't disqualify or invalidate my response. Broadly speaking, and maybe this isn't a question about race, but it probably is. Uh, broadly speaking, what does Buffalo need? Buffalo needs more resources for the youth. They need to see some hope. The inner city youth need to see hope. They need to see that the light at the end of the tunnel is not the train. It's not TikTok. It's not Instagram. It's actually a path. And if you stay the course, there is or can be beautiful outcomes. So we need more youth resources. And they have. you have to start young. You have to start early. Are you talking more mentorship programs? Yes. Okay. Of which I'm trying to start. I, I actually have a, a grant writer who is doing some research for me now because I am partnering with a friend of mine in order to provide those um, mentoring programs and those type of um, boots to the ground activities so that they can see that, you know, it's hard work. Everybody's not going to be going viral and get famous off of TikTok because they tried this lipstick, there's actually work to be done. All right. And, and you mentioned that you're working on a second book. And I early, am. Earlier or, in the program, you spoke of poetry. <laughs> 
So I've, I've got to ask you, what are you writing now? Well, I'm working on two books. One of them is a little urban fiction, and I'm not going to say the title of that because it's a little spicy, and I don't think I All can right. say it on air. And the other one is The Black Professionals Guy's Sisters Play Nice in the Sandbox, and it's about the relationships between women in the workplace and how we kind of do each other and tragically. I, I, so that's interesting to me. Your premise is that sisters don't treat each other the way they should. And and this is not sisters as in women of color. I'm talking about sisters, women. Okay. Yeah, we don't treat each other fair. All right, what about the poetry? Oh, I love poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I write a lot of poetry. I write I write something every day and it's is kind of like my heartbeat and I used to be a slam poet and um I I something might hit me and I'll just like I wrote about cutting my hair off. So I I did this poem, um my short natural hair Colored blonde, yet I have no blue eyes or even green, but I work this look better than any Caucasian queen. And that's no shade, but buzz cuts or fades like me is well maintained. Yeah, I said it short and cute with intelligence to boot. But when I cut off my dark brown tresses, people began to wonder, girl, is it basketball shorts or dresses? Save your questions or comments unless it's to compliment. This is my signature look created more than 20 years ago, long before the beautiful Amber Rose. I decided not to let my hair grow. One of the points. And that's off the top of your head. That's <laughs> tremendous. That's Sandra Brown. Now, Cy Arnold from Nura and Associates, her DEI education and consulting firm, has a unique small business niche. My company, Nora and Associates, the first thing that we focus on is providing a level of um, racial equity and being able to talk about the system of inequities that small businesses focus on. So our two primary services is organizational leadership. And within that, we'll begin to talk about what opportunities are available to be able to close the gap and provide equitable opportunities. So it's more than just hiring. It's the way they manage their business. Yes. It's the way they manage their business. It's the way that they they operate within their business models, the partners that they bring to the table, how they um, continue to advance their relationships with their consumers. And so I primarily, although I serve everyone, I really have a niche specialty with minority-owned businesses, um, so women or people of color. And the reason why I'm specific in that area is because I know the limited access that people of color and minority-owned businesses have had, whether it's due to funding, um, whether it's lack of talent that they can get, whether it's lack of capital, being able to go to those big banks and apply, um, whether they have to leverage their personal funds. There's so many things and so many systems of inequities that have been developed that doesn't allow them to operate at the same level of efficiencies of non, um, non-of-color organizations. Um, and so if you just look at COVID and PPP, a lot of small businesses that were minority-led did not have access to the resources or did not get approved for the funding. So my company is to come in and observe how can we make it more equitable and what opportunities are there. So it's not just incorporate DEI into your small business. It's navigate your business as a minority-owned business. Yes, and looking for what opportunities are available um, that are equitable. And when we think about equity, it's just understanding that everyone has a different starting point. And what are your needs? When you look at equality, it's understanding that everybody has the same fairness and likeness. And how I like to describe it as everyone has access to walk in and out of a door. Yeah. But the way you walk in and out of the door or have access to that may be based on equity. 
So if you are a person who's in a wheelchair, you may not be able to walk through the door the same way a person who does not need a wheelchair. And that's understanding equity versus equality. Okay. And you would argue, obviously, that a person of color has is akin to the wheelchair. I, I would argue that a person of color, people of color, um, need equity. And we, pe- what we need people to understand is that we all have different starting points. And when we look at the systems of inequity that have been placed against us way long back into our history, whether it was the Jim Crow laws, whether it was the redlining, all of the things that have been stacked against us, although we still prevail and we're still able to, you know, do what we need to do, we really need people to understand that equity needs to be in consideration. So when we're creating policies, when we're creating procedures, when we're creating um, systems, we need to think about the systems of oppression historically that has taken place that may marginalize people current day. All right. What are the biggest obstacles to equity? Um, really if funding <laughs> okay. uh, for a lot of times for small businesses. Um, they don't have, if they don't get the right funding, if they don't get the ability, um, look at change, supplies, demand, something we've all experienced. But when you're a minority-owned business, if you don't have the right funding, you don't know how to pivot right away. Mm-hmm. When we think about COVID, people didn't have the extra funds aside in their business model to just pivot to a you know, non-contact-based solution. When we think about um, real estate, Three percent of people of color own commercial real estate. Three. Three. Okay. Three. Um, we well, no, we're not even talking about home ownership, but just yeah. think about from a business perspective. So the brick and mortars, or the things that create passive income, right? Or just stability when recessions hit. We don't have that. Um, and so giving us more opportunities to get that type of lending. When we think about our experiences with. Um, Government contracting. You know, I know it's a big push right now for everybody to become minority women business um, certified or just minority business certified. But when we think about historically, all of the big contracts primarily always go to the same people and don't give access for other people. We don't then get access for those big cover, those big contracts. And we then don't know how to do business with the government. Is it fair to say that the MWBE program, Minority Women Business Enterprise mm-hmm. Program, doles out preferences to the people who are registered as MWBEs. I would say it's fair that there's more opportunities than there has ever been. When you look across our region, we see there's a lot of more opportunities to get certified. Um, when I would say in terms of distribution, there's a lot more access than it was before. But? The but in it is. <laughs> I knew it was coming. No, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. The but in it is um, everything is relationships. So it's kind of like a kid that goes to the playground that never knew how to um, climb up the monkey bars by themselves. So you give them access to the monkey bars, you give them all the tools, but sometimes you still need that person on the side that says you can do it left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand, right? And when you kind of get these certifications, you tell them where to go, but you don't have those relationships to walk you through. You either don't apply, you get scared, you do apply, and then you realize your counterpart probably got this at such a faster rate, it was an easier process to navigate. So although I love that there's more access, it need, I think there needs to be more access um, 
with the ability of relationships and kind of that pipeline. Does the city or the county or whatever government entity is administering the MWBE program, do they need to change things or is it really more just what you said, the idea of access and awareness? I think the the government entities are doing a better job um, with the changes that have been made. And what I would say that the changes that do need to be made is that it needs to be continued to have equity in mind, continue to invite people of color as stakeholders to the table when they're creating these policies, procedures, um, continue to have shareholder meetings with your community, especially the community who it will be served to, it will be affected to mm-hmm. say, how might we navigate this process together? That feels a lot better. You, I think, are not the first to say that the community, capital C, mm-hmm. is sometimes just left out of the planning. Absolutely. Um, it's always usually we will create the rules, process, procedures, because we know what's best, then we'll go to the community and... And say, here are the rules, here, processes, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think what's... Um, we always need resistors and champions, I always say. So any work that I develop, I always say, let me go to my resistors first, because that's going to be the one person who's probably going to give me anxiety, tear it apart, give feedback that my my champion won't, right? We need that even with people who create um, opportunities for our community. Bring in that community stakeholder who's usually against whatever policy, because they give hopefully a perspective that can provide solution change and then I always tell people if you come to me with a problem come with the solution but also be ready to put in work i'm intrigued because i think most folks and and to some degree i was this way think of dei as a big company thing mm-hmm. um what is the impact on hiring when you only have two or three employees mm-hmm. when you're a small business something i i know you concentrate on businesses of 10 employees or mm-hmm. larger. But even so, I would think that DEI work for an organization with 15 employees is probably a lot harder than DEI work for a company with 100 employees. Yeah, I, I, I like to say we should think of DEI as an everyday practice, right? So when we're creating any type of business goals, is it inclusive and is it equitable? Throughout the entire throughout the, process, throughout the not entire just process, hiring thing. not just hiring. It's how we, you know, de- develop relationships with our vendors, our accountants, our stakeholders. Our we engage with our um, customers. How we do online business, whatever your business model looks like. If it's I want to make ten k in this next quarter um, with. A new distributor, okay, let's think about is that person a minority-owned business? Let's think about is it equitable because it's a given opportunity, right? Let's think about when I want to hire. For me, I specifically, like I said, focus on um, minority women-owned businesses, although I work with a lot on, and the reason is because I can give them that coaching. So if we talk about hiring, when I focus on organizational leadership, it's mostly the business owner who wants to move on and do something else, but they kind of need their team to continue to run with the mission. So when you think about hiring, let's talk about venture capital. If I want to go and raise funds as a business owner, raise funds for my venture capital, I need to make sure I have a diverse team behind me because they have access to networks. They have access to rooms. They probably have access to information. And if I'm a tech firm and I want to go raise capital um, for, for VC funding, 
nine times out of 10, they have access to information that I don't get as a woman-owned business, right, of color. Mm. So I need to make sure that when I'm hiring, although I want to create space for hiring people who look like me because we absolutely have the skills and ability, I want to create space for other people, and that's diversity. And then I want to make sure I create a culture of equity and inclusion so that they feel like they belong, they feel like that they're represented. Um, and because the here's the thing about it. When we create diverse, equitable cultures and inclusive cultures with any business practice, I don't care if you're a two-man business or a two-million business, you create more business revenue. Not only is it morally correct, you create more business revenue. There you is have, an economic There's an economic there. impact that yeah. is like crucial, crucial. So when I look at my top brands and brands that I love, even if they're about black founders, guess what they did? They had to diversify their portfolio. Guess who has access to that information? Usually people who don't look like us, but not also let's not mitigate the fact that people who look like us does have access to that information and they're in the room and they will create spaces and tables for us. That's Shai Arnold. This is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks, highlights of our weekly conversations on diversity, segregation, and other issues that spring from the top shootings. We end the program today with Angelie Preston's conversation with the sisters of Alpha Kappa Alpha, Buffalo Gamma Phi Omega Chapter President Otili Woodruff, Vice President Denise Cobbs, and later, Social Justice Chair Pamela Stevens-Jackson. We are so excited to have you. I'm so excited to have you. Let's, first of all, pink and green. I see you all got your gear on. Yes. Let's let's talk about, uh, before we, I have my pink and green on too, even yes, though I'm not a soror, yes, <laughs> but I wanted to represent for y'all ladies because y'all were coming on. Yes, yes. Let's talk about the sisterhood of the AKAs. What, how important is it? Well, um, let's say that we are a group of college-educated women um, with a, um, uh, we have the same mission in mind, and that is service to all mankind, right? So that's our motto. Um, we uh, start at uh, the undergraduate level, and we move on to the graduate level. And we continue with our service um, in the community, addressing the needs in the community within uh, where we live. Um, and so um, that like-mindedness keeps us connected. Um, and the interesting connection is that we also um, sort of mirror the other fraternities and sororities in terms of service being our mission. Okay. The Divine Nine. Yes. So the AKAs started at Howard University, which is a HBCU in yes. 1908. But tell us about your chapter. So our chapter started in uh, 1944, June 25th, 1944. We were chartered uh, here in Buffalo. Um, at the Michigan Street Y. Um, and every opportunity we get, we want to edify our uh, founding members. And they were Natalie Hilda Evans. She attended Morgan State. Lois Hill White was from the University of Kansas. Marie Ming Hardy was from Michigan State. Edna Turner C. was from West Virginia State. 
Maude Cummings was from Montgomery. Um, Maude Cummings Montgomery, rather, was from Fisk University. Francis Knight Hall was from Talladega. And Verna Horn Johnson was from Talladega. So the interesting connection there is that they attended HBCUs, which is probably where they were initiated. And when they came to Buffalo, most of them were educators, um, came, bought themselves back together again to form our chapter, Gamma Phi Omega chapter, uh, in 1944. So tell us, because the AKAs and a lot in the black sororities started um, on HBCUs, but it's it's expanded. Um, Buffalo oh, yes. State, my alma mater, Denise. Yes. Your alma mater, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. They have all these organ these colleges that are not HBCUs also have their chapters. So how how important is it for for or for organizations like the sororities and fraternities to to be to be national to just not be mm. on mm. HBCUs or at HBCUs that's that's a good question um, I think the the ability to find some commonality some some way that you're represented on a predominantly white campus um, the organizations give you the opportunity to connect um, and be a uh, um, and be a, a, a stepping stone for each other, right? Um, so that you can grow um, and encourage and support um, in your mission for becoming college educated because we know that that's not an easy process. Um, it's not for the weak at heart. <laughs> so having um, a resource or you know someone that you can um, um, help you you know, um, in the process, I think is really important. Um, and it's much easier when you're on a campus and you see yourself walking, you know, every day as opposed to when you're not. Uh, so it, it becomes a, um, I'm going to say support system for lack of a better term, and I'm sure that there is a better term, um, but it becomes a support system for you. I would, I would definitely agree, though, because I'm the... And I get the opportunity to watch young men and women who might not have anybody else to connect with who end up finding commonality with others, and it is a, a real means of support. Um, that and some of the other specialty programs, but particularly the fraternities and sororities because it also gives them an opportunity to be involved in service and philanthropy and things like that, that they wouldn't just go out and do themselves. And it's almost a continuation of high school from that standpoint because a lot of students do that now. Not always, but a lot of students do that in high school. So it gives them something that they're already accustomed to doing and a group of people, a ready-made group of people to do it with. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the programs that the AKAs have. The Emeralds of Excellence, um, the Debutante Program. Okay, yes. So the Emeralds of Excellence was our, <clears throat> excuse me, our 2020 Debutante Program. Um, and that was a, hmm, a breath of fresh air for us because it was in the midst of COVID. Um, and we were able to have a virtual program. So we were really excited about that. Um, this is our 40th year, our 40th debutante program coming up this December 10th, 2022. And it is the Reflections of Excellence, uh, Leadership Through Resilience. I think I got that right. <laughs> um, and so we started this program in 1949. 
Um, our first program was at Klein Hands Music Hall, and I believe it stayed there for many years, and it was a big uh, event in Buffalo um, for the debutante program. So we're hoping for the same thing this year. Um, so we've uh, had over 700 young ladies go through the program She's a debutante, yes. You know what, Pamela? <laughs> we are going to get to you, and we have two. We have two mics. We are going to get to you in the second part. <laughs> and okay. I do, and I do. I do want to talk about. I do want to talk about that with you. Um, <laughs> go ahead. So this year we have uh, eleven. Uh, young ladies going through the program. Um, as a matter of fact, they just returned from their college tour. They had an opportunity to visit American University, Georgetown University, and HU, Howard University. Um, and sp speaking with the young ladies, they had a fabulous weekend. Um, and so we're excited about their coming out. Um, in 1981, our program started doing what we call the Rites of Passage or the African um, Present to Society. And so we have two presentations during our debutante program. Um, one is European and the other is African. So we're excited about our debutante program. It is our signature um, program. Like I said, this is our 40th one um, and it will continue and it services the community, we think, because of uh, what it does for leadership and instilling leadership in our young women. So yeah, that's where we're at. Awesome. Yeah. I want to shift over to Denise for, for a moment. Yes. <laughs> Vice President of AKAs. Can you tell us what do you do within the organization? I certainly can. <laughs> as Vice President, I am Program Chair and just to, just want you to know that AKA is heavily involved in volunteer and community work through what was called under our past administration our target programs and are now known as our initiatives. It's often said that programs are the heart of AKA and that is so true. In the past our program targets theme was exemplifying excellence and focused on HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities, promoting academics and awarding scholarships to young people. Uh, we also focus on women's health care and wellness, building our economic legacy, the arts, Harlem Renaissance, and global impact. And now, under the new sorority administration, led by our international president, Danette Anthony Reed. We are presently embracing the theme for our 2022 through 2026, AKA programs soaring to greater heights of service and sisterhood. Our new initiatives include strengthening our sisterhood and we're building on love, respect, and shared goals. We're empowering families by addressing childhood hunger and they're calling that AKA CHIP. C-H-I-P-P, which is our Childhood Hunger Initiative Power Pack. And we're sending food items home on the weekends within local communities for cho children who are in need. This program is being spearheaded by internationally known superstar, Miss Patti LaBelle. Okay, Patty. Okay, Miss Patty. Patty, 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 Patty pies. Okay, the sweet Patty. potato pies at Walmart. Mm, I throw a few of them in there. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have our YLI, which is Youth Leadership Institute, which is a youth-led 
highly interactive leadership program designed to empower and engage youth ages 11 to 13 years old. So the the AKAs really, really try to include everyone from the from from the young to the old. To the old. Mm-hmm. So everyone yes. has a has a part in absolutely mm-hmm. service to mm-hmm. all mankind. Service to all, all mankind. mankind. That's our mm-hmm. motto. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm on a roll. Go ahead. Yes. We've also um, taking part in building economic wealth. And listen out for that. It's going to be a credit union coming up. More information on that. Yeah. Um, Building economic wealth includes supporting women entrepreneurs. They're out here. Yes. Yes, we are. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are. (laughs) Also enhancing the environment, focusing on tree planting and waste reduction and uplifting the local community through programs, services and practices. And we're definitely going to talk about that with Sister Pam advocating for social justice. And I just want to say a yes. Sisterhood is our signature and service is our mission. Yes, And that yeah. And. Is it is you done or is you finished? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, well, while I while I have the mic, yeah, I just ahead. want to give a shout out <laughs> to NPHC, which is our National Panhellenic Council, uh, to Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity. Omega Psi Phi Fraternity, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity, Zeta Phi Beta Sorority, Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority, and Iota Phi Theta Fraternity. And for those who don't know, those sororities and fraternities that Denise just named are part of the Divine Nine. The yes. Divine Nine Sororities and Fraternities. And, and she named them all. <laughs> yes, I did. And we come, we come together to serve social causes, including women's suffrage, civil rights, and, of course, Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask, because uh, we did have, we uh, off, uh, off air in our conversation before, um, I asked about, Line names and <laughs> and oddly, what did, <laughs> no line names in the graduate chapter. So the <laughs> only line, the undergrads. Only the under, yes. for those who don't know, uh, line names are, are something that uh, who who would who would give the name? Would it be the president of that chapter of the sorority or the? I think it's the line that comes. The in line the that comes in. They yeah. come up with their names and their yeah their line name. Their line name and their personal and their name. personal name for that line on the line. And yes. that goes with like with stepping and yes. all that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, we don't step either. No, I'm a little too <laughs> old stroll. for that. Yes, we we may stroll a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, stroll, stepping, keep <laughs> moving. That's right. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> I wanted to uh, name some names and and then you tell me what the significance of these names are. Okay. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, actress Loretta Devine. Actress Felicia Rashad. Sisters. Those are our sisters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they are your fellow Sorars. Yes. Uh, so I wanted to ask, um, when when the VP, Madame Vice President, became the first woman, the first African American, the first South Asian woman to be to hold this office, how did how did that make you feel? Ooh. Oh my gosh. Just, yes, it was amazing. Yes. We just put on our chucks and pearls uh, yes. and celebrated yes. the fact that she was a first. Yes. 
in yes it felt good yes that right down to the core it just felt so good um an amazing you know uh opportunity for that visibility at that level oh my gosh um mm, i I mean words can't even explain it and it's the epitome of leadership yes it's what it is it's what we do we strive Mm -hmm. and we do Mm-hmm. And because of the fact that she became a member at the Alpha chapter at Howard, at Howard which University. was another yes. plug because of the fact that that's where the organization began. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to take a we're going to take a quick break because okay. then I want to I want to switch out and mm-hmm. uh, get uh, the, the chair social chair pamela pamela stevens jackson in here pam is fine okay how are you doing well we we were talking before you arrived um and uh one of the themes here um that is with the akas and and sororities and sorars is commitment and um your sisters mentioned that you just came back from europe uh last night and you are here this morning morning. yes Talk talk about the commitment and what it and 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 what it takes, like because that ride, I'm sure the flight was what travel time twenty hours, and you're here yeah. this morning. <laughs> I left the Czech Republic midday yesterday, and I went through Munich to Chicago to Buffalo. I left my son in the midday, and I got back in the house at about one fifteen in the morning. And now you're here at WBFO. (laughs) Well, that's because I told my president before I left that I would be here. And then I forgot where it was, and I was like, so I sent her a text. Let's talk about what you do within the organization, Uh, social justice chair uh, or Black Lives Matter activism. Talk to our audience about what you do specifically. My responsibility is chair of the committee that arranges or collaborates with other organizations and the sisters within our sorority to provide opportunities for the community, um, empowerment, voter issues, including registration, awareness, education, even down to things like education about what the time frames are for voter registration, where to do it. Sometimes we will collaborate with another organization and do, for example, a voter registration drive where we will have laptops there so that people can either register online and we'll have the hard copies for those people who aren't comfortable doing that. And that's typically somebody who's older. Sorry. Um, okay. <laughs> seasoned, yes. yes. Seasoned, yes. <laughs> Who would prefer to actually have the paper, fill it out, and we can either mail it for them or let them take it and mail it themselves. Either way, encouraging people to not only register to vote, but then as a follow-up to actually go vote because it does no good if you're registered and you don't actually vote. Um, there are misnomer is that the four-year election is the only one that's important, but it's not the case because the midterm elections in between can completely change the composition of the Senate, the House, all the state legislature, all the county legislatures, and it can mean a big difference in terms of what's accomplished, what's not accomplished, what's advocated for, and Sometimes people don't see that. They think about, you know, presidential election and that's the time to get out and vote. And they don't pay any attention to the other things until things start going wrong. A good example would be the reversal of Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. And nobody saw that coming. Um, 
but to hopefully prevent things that would not be agreeable for the community at large. And at least, and we don't advocate for particular candidates either. We advocate for voting, for registering, and then actually follow through and voting. Not, no political um, campaigning, so to speak. However, if we do have sorority members who end up in office, we like to partner with them to assist them with their mission, to help them accomplish more because it, it helps the more people you have involved reaching more in terms of numbers and accomplishing more. I want to talk about the work that you do at UB. Ah. <laughs> so, director of uh, fraternities and sororities? Yeah, they, it's, it's sort of weird. I'm the assistant director of student engagement for fraternities and sororities, but there is no director of soror fraternity and sororities, but that's me. So I will say director when I'm talking to people elsewhere because they don't understand it. If you say assistant, well, let me speak to the director. Well, there is no director. I'm the <laughs> I am so, the director. <laughs> exactly. But the university doesn't permit that, so I, I'm the assistant director of student engagement. I'm responsible for all of the social fraternal organizations at the university. What are some of the things that uh, students on campus that have pledged uh, sor sororities and fraternities, what are some of the things that they express to you as to why they want to pledge or, you know, become uh, a member? For a lot of them, it's, for one thing mentioned by our president, uh, a support system. It's an opportunity to have people who are like-minded and maybe similar backgrounds, similar experiences, but it's also an opportunity to give back collectively because it's difficult, you know, like as a random student, especially if you came from someplace else, to just go out and do something. But if you have a group of people that's already doing it, all you have to do is join them. And typically they are because, and I have all, not just the NPHCs, I've got all of the fraternal organizations. Um, Sometimes they do it as a system, so it's all of them. Sometimes they do it as individual councils or even individual organizations. What is the significance of, of pink and green and also the pearls? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, well yes, pink I and green is our, our, our colors, colors when the organization was founded. It's mm -hmm. actually salmon pink and apple green specifically trademarked and licensed. We okay. Are also, yes. Yeah. Yes. We're also the only organization that has our call and our pinky trademarked and trademarked. licensed. Yes. Wow. You can go online uh, and you can click the sound bite, and there's actually a person from the national, the international headquarters that did it. No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so the 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 pinky um and the in the in the call um I, I just want to I want to I want to take it back to when um we had a making black america screening um documentary that aired on WNED PBS uh the past for the past few weeks um and it spoke about these black communities communities that were created in the face of racism um segregation and sororities and fraternities were a part of that discussion and at the um when when the snippet came on there was someone in the audience that that was like ee or did like Ski -wee. yes that was us <laughs> <laughs> What, where, where, did, where did that come from? That I have no idea. I have no idea. I've never even heard, you know, where it originated. But my mother was a golden sore, which means she had been in for 50 years. And 
she talked of skiing at Bethune-Cookman College because it was college then, not university, and that was 1954. Right. So wow. that that was a long time ago. Yes. Well, you're gonna um, make me find out. <laughs> I gotta find that out. Now. Ozzy's gonna go. Google. Gonna take out the go, go, Google. go right to Google. <laughs> <laughs> what wow. What's next for the for you ladies for the AKAs? I'm not sure if we can say next as in different, um, different programs, but mm -hmm. still the same missions and the same general goals. The service to all mankind is pretty much a summary, and it can take all different shapes, colors, forms, sizes, events, activities. Bottom line is service to mankind. And does mm -hmm. the, the AKAs, do they have, do they have any, any uh, programs or anything uh, coming up in the future? Yes. So we have our um, debutante program, December 10th, 2022, uh, at the Buffalo Niagara Convention Center. Um, at 3 p.m., we have our Rites of Passage program. And then our pageant and ball begins at uh, 7 p.m. The Buffalo Convention Center, um, is that open to the public? Where can people get, can they get tickets? Yes. So uh, tickets are on Eventbrite um, for the pageant and ball. Um, the Rites of Passage program is open to the public and it's free. Oh, free. We like that. We like, we like free. free. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the cultural part because we would want that's people to part, right. be able mm -hmm. to regardless of financial standing to be able to see experience participate in that portion yes. of it because it's lar it's the i don't want to say more important but it's the african mm -hmm. portion mm -hmm. as opposed to the european which is the cotillion sort of activity mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. trying to fi figure out a word for that yes does anyone have any, uh, we're, we're closing in on our final minutes. Does anyone have any um, final thoughts or anything else that they wanted to talk about or discuss about the AKAs or your trip from Europe, <laughs> your mad dash to get no. to the studio this morning? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and I ended up behind a police officer on the 33. Now, normal me, I probably shouldn't say this, but normal me, I'd be doing 80, 85. <laughs> he was right in front of me, and he was going 55. So I stayed right next to him. And I didn't ever look at him, but I could see him out of the corner of my eye. So eventually he moved over and moved up, and I moved over and moved up behind him. So as fast as he went, because he can't be clocking me behind him. Yeah. All he can say is I'm parallel. He can't say how fast I'm going. Oh, like, Mr. Police Officer, get out the way. I, I'm late. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Oh, I didn't do any different. Don't hilarious. give me a ticket. Can't give me a ticket. If you want. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, ladies. Well, so. thank you for having us. We really appreciate this uh, opportunity to talk about um, the things that we're doing in the community because they are very important. Um, and the, the fraternities and sororities are very important to our community. So thank you uh, for giving us this opportunity. Thank you for coming, and yes. the invitation is always uh, extended for you to come back later and talk about um, whatever else you have going on okay. in addition to the programs. So right. Thanks so much, ladies. Thank you, Thank you Angelie. Yes. The Sisters of Alpha Kappa Alpha Buffalo Phi Omega Chapter wrapping up today's program for us there. 
Buffalo What's Next is a daily podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's also available on demand at WBFO.org and on the WBFO and NPR One apps. You can also hear it live each weekday at 10 with a rebroadcast each night at 9. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.